Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy Howes. Hope you're doing all right out there. Uh, We are well into the COVID-19 shutdown, maybe feeling a lot of anxiety, restlessness. But I guess like my best advice is feel your feelings, talk about them if you need to, like don't ignore them. There are some crazy things happening in the world right now that we've never experienced before. So take some time to Just make sure you're taking care of, like, what's happening inside of you. Today on the podcast, I'm happy to be talking to Mike Savino, who is the brains behind the experimental banjo act Tall Tall Trees. Mike was raised in Long Island and first encouraged to explore his musical talents thanks to his sixth grade band teacher. From there, he became engulfed in the world of jazz, first on the saxophone and then on bass. He thought he would be actually a professional bass player in New York City's experimental jazz scene, but then he heard the siren call of the banjo, which who could blame him? Uh, He talks about the first time he got a banjo, which then led him to learning the instrument, and then talked about when he was touring in South America as a bass player, he found that musicians would play socially on the street. So he wasn't able to play on the street with the electric bass, so he bought a banjo and then was able to join. From there, he's like, man, playing the banjo and singing is pretty fun. His life path changed completely, well, musically speaking. He started playing the banjo in a totally unique and innovative way, which led him to backing up his very good friend Kishibashi on tour several times and is like basically a member of Kishibashi's band. After many years in New York City, Mike eventually moved to the South. He settled in Asheville, North Carolina, which led him to exploring his love of bluegrass and old time on the banjo. This has resulted in his most organic album, which is A Wave of Golden Things. We talked about the recording process of the record. He made it on a hemp farm in a few weeks. And while he was producing the record, 16 baby animals were born. So yeah, we also talk about baby animals. Enjoy this conversation with Mike from Tall Tall Trees. Um, it's it's so interesting because we're going to hear uh, the, the passing of John Prine has totally bummed everyone out. Um, so the song that we're going to hear... When I first saw the title, I thought, like, wow, what a John Prine song title. Um, This is from Tall Tall Tree's latest album, Happy Birthday in Jail, is the song. And then we'll get to our conversation with Mike Savino of Tall Tall Trees on Basic Folk. Sunday morning, lazy feeling, no way, no one stealing this from me. I get one day, and you get six days. 
Makes me wanna hide away. I can't wait until you Mike Savino, Tall, Tall Trees. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, no problem. Um, you were born and raised in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep, town okay. called Smithtown. Smithtown. Mm-hmm. That sounds... Uh, that sounds... Pretty average. It's pretty average. Yeah, it's a nice, nice town, and right smack in the middle of Long Island, exit fifty eight on the LIE. Yeah, it was a nice place to grow up. You know, very suburbs, very um, you know, wholesome in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's nice. Hmm. Uh, what was your family structure? Uh, just me and my mom and dad and my little brother. He was three years my um, my junior. <laughs> and what did your parents do? My dad worked for the um, uh, electrical company, electric company, and uh, which became kind of the energy company. Yeah. And my mom was, she raised us at home and then she went to work in the schools, like working for um, special ed programs and yeah, working in mostly elementary schools and stuff. So kind of like a blue collar yeah, yeah. My 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 dad was did pretty good. He worked really hard, and you know he he was an executive. Uh, he became an executive at the company, but worked his way up. So yeah, nice. Where was music in your young life? Like, how did your family listen to music when you were growing up? I mean, I think the the earliest um, sense of music that I got in my house was driving around and. My mom's car, I think, you know, as a young kid, she was raising us and driving us everywhere. And like, it's funny now, like all these years later, I find these albums that my mom used to listen to when I was a kid and and there's such a deep connection to it. And she had pretty cool taste in music. Surprisingly, she was into like things like Stevie Wonder and uh, this Anita Baker <laughs> record that I remember called Rapture that was, you know, that I just found on vinyl and listening to it is like a time machine, like putting me in the back of my mom's 1976 Grand Prix, you know, it was, uh, but yeah, the I mean, Michael Jackson, of course, you know, things like this, but I, you know, I always remember being connected to music like my mom's got all these pictures of me as a little kid with this little Fisher Price tape recorder you know running around the house and you know I had a tape collection yeah were you making your own tapes or just listening to no I was just listening at that time I was just listening uh you know I I didn't find music as a as something to do until school you know got it fourth grade pick a band instrument. Luckily in those days we were fortunate to have, you know, music programs in school that was pretty either mandatory or, you know, I mean, it was there for everybody who wanted it. So yeah, I I chose saxophone and I played saxophone all throughout school. 
in my school, the saxophone was like the most popular instrument. Oh yeah, you know. So like, you're pretty lucky. I did. I got into it. Yeah, I was uh, I was um, second chair pretty much my entire high school career behind this one guy I won't mention, but um, <laughs> you know, he was just very studious. I I mean I I'm not a very structured learner. I prefer um, just very a Montessori style lifestyle, you know, very, um, you know, not that I went to Montessori school, but what I imagine Montessori is a little more uh, loose structured, you know? So what, what was your, um, practicing? Like, would you practice at home or would you just try to figure it out? No, I definitely practice at home, but I never practice the things that we were supposed to practice. I would always have like these books of like TV sitcom themes that I would be playing, you know, <laughs> like or Axel F or something like that, where I, I thought it was cool. But, um, you know, I was into it. I, w- I played alto saxophone and in sixth grade, which what really changed my life was my band director, Mr. Hangley, pulled me aside after um, one of our practices and he showed me this baritone saxophone and asked if I wanted to play it. And it was huge and I could barely carry it, you know, being like probably 10 or 11 years old at the time. But I saw it as a big, shiny, huge saxophone. I was like, yes, I want that. I'm going to play that. I, I realized this thing like, you know, as far as the trajectory of my life, like I've always liked to do something that on- there's only one of you know, in a, in a group. I always liked to have something that was original, you know, I didn't want to be part of a section. I wanted to be, you know, kind of an original. And like when he gave me that baritone saxophone, I was the only one in the band, you know, so Mm. I, I've, and I was playing bass basically. So I, you know, in doing that, that led me to play in jazz band and then meet the other, the older baritone saxophone player who also, who also played bass guitar. You know, on, you know, and when I saw the bass guitar, him playing the bass guitar, I was like, oh, that's, that's what I wanted. It was right around the time when MTV was like super happening and, you know, playing bass for me was like, I know it was, it was a dream, you know? So you, you told this story, um, after your music teacher, Mr. Hangley, he gave you the baritone sax to play, and then you were playing, the band was playing um, a John Philip Sousa song, and then at the end you did this little, like, improvised thing, and, like, everybody turned around and looked at you in surprise. So that seems like a really important moment to you. Can you explain that feeling and what it was like to go for that riff and then have everyone react to it? Um, I mean, yeah, it was exhilarating for me. I... You know, to play something that was off the page. Like we were playing this, you know, the band director, he loved John Philip Sousa. He was like a trombone player and that was his like passion was this music. So he was, you know, had these the 10, 11, 12 year old kids playing it, you know, off the, you know, sheet music and whatever. And yeah, we were playing one of them. That, and just at the end, I did a little like boop at the end and everybody just like, <laughs> was like, whoa, what was that? So you know, I mean, for me, it it kind of like connected music, like, you know, that it's not just these notes on the page, that it's actually something that's alive and, you know, can be messed with and can make people laugh and stuff. And for me, like, you know, I was a bit of a class clown and I, you know, I'd like to, you know, get attention as any, you know, school kid would. And that for me, you know, a light went off and said, oh, you can get attention with music, you know, 
you know, and right around that time that, you know, when I was playing in the jazz band, the kid next to me, you know, was playing bass and he would show me some stuff. And then eventually someone who had an extra bass and amp lying around their house decided to lend it to me. And that started me off playing string instruments, which has been the whole linchpin of my life, I think, you know. Yeah, you had, it sounds like you were really kind of planning your young adult life around the bass. Um, You thought you would be a jazz bass player. Mm -hmm. Um, You studied the jazz double bass at the new school. Mm -hmm. And, but then it sounds like, you know, I just want to, I just want to hear more about your connection to the bass, why you were specifically into jazz and where, where it took you. Yeah. Well, jazz wasn't really my uh, initial, I I've went through so many different kinds of music before getting to jazz. I think as a young kid playing bass and stuff, I was into MTV, you know, I was into heavy metal. I was into Iron Maiden, huge. They are amazing at marketing to young adolescent <laughs> boys, but, um, but I still love that music, but yeah, I was into metal and then, you know, it kind of followed with the, the, the trend of the years, you know, I mean, we're talking about, this is the early nineties, you know, in 1990 or something like that. So from heavy metal, you know, to what, you know, became grunge and Kurt Cobain and stuff like that, you know, was a huge leading factor but also things like red hot chili peppers where the bass mm. was so forward and i loved this band called primus which primus yeah you know which you know those those things especially primus was huge for me because it was like this kind of really annoying music to my parents but for me <laughs> i loved it i loved it so and i still love it and it opened up a whole world of like what music could be what bass could be and like yeah, it was very exciting for me. When you were a teenager and kind of becoming an adult, did you have a good relationship with your parents? Like you said, like your music would annoy them, but mm-hmm. what what was that relationship like? Were you a good kid? I mean, I was a good kid. I was, my poor parents though, I was very defiant and maybe a little too smart for my own good. And, you know, I... I was not an easy child to raise, I'm sure. You know, I was very, um, especially around the time where, like, you know, Nirvana and that whole kind of, like, teenage rebellion thing kicked in for me. You know, I was shaving my head and dyeing my hair green and, you know, driving them absolutely nuts being, you know, conservative Italian family from, you know, from New York. But I was a good kid. But, you know, I definitely ran them through the ringer with my, you know, own form of rebellion, you know, which was loud rock and roll music and, you know, and sneaking out of the house and, you know, cutting school and stuff like that. So the things you do when you feel misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from that day and age, I've always I've just... I'm not an easily schoolable person. I don't like structure and school in that aspect, project oriented things. I like to educate myself and, you know, follow my own interests and stuff. And I think that's where, you know, if you really chase your passions, you'll, you'll educate yourself, I think, you know. 
Your intense love for the banjo came about a little bit later. You were touring and recording in Brazil as a bass player. Mm-hmm. Can can you talk about how you picked up the banjo and what it felt like to connect with the instrument at first? Yeah, well, I'll tell you the all honest truth because we're on a podcast here and we can talk frankly. Um, sometimes, you know, you know, when my mom reads my interviews and stuff, you know, I'm a little shy, but... But I, I actually started playing banjo in the first time I went to college, uh, which <laughs> which after high school, I went to Penn State to be a doctor. I I kind of had this, you know, conditioning my entire life um, that I need to be a professional, a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And, you know, even though I had interests um, in music my entire life, it was very apparent I didn't think that was an option for me as a as a job. So I went to Penn State for pre-med, and I was studying to be a doctor. And, Do you know what kind? Uh, I was going to be a pediatrician, um, which would have been kind of a perfect job for me, and I would have been much well, well, <laughs> much better off financially right now. But, but yeah, I went to Penn State, and I did terrible. You know, they put me in a, a, a dorm with all the derelicts and all the hippies and, you know, stuff like that. So I God, ended Penn, up... I'm trying to, like, picture you at Penn State and I'm having a hard time. Yeah, me too. It was, it's kind of a while ago. It's a, it's a different life uh, that I led. You know, I was, you know, I tried. I really tried so many times, but all I wanted to do was, like, you know take psychedelics and play music with my friends and stuff. That's who I was into the Grateful Dead. Like I still am obviously into the Grateful Dead, but you know, that kind of thing that kind of swept me away after that whole alternative, you know, thing, grunge and whatever. I found the Grateful Dead and fish as well. And like those musics, like to me, like perked up, you know, something in me that I wasn't finding in like this heavy metal. It was like this kind of freedom, you know, for a musician. As I got more serious into playing music and, and, you know, improvising, I guess, like bands like the Grateful Dead and stuff, they led me to this place where it was cool. I love the culture. I'm, you know, everything that goes with it. So, you know, at that time in college, yeah, I was not into school. I was into music and stuff. And, I was selling a little bit of weed on the side um, to help, you know, pay for things. And some guy, knowing that I was a musician, brought me a banjo in lieu of money. Uh, He said, you know, I don't have any money, but can I give you this banjo for some weed? And I said, "Uh, sure. You know, and that's actually how I got my first banjo. Um, At that time, I just played bass, you know. So, So, yeah, I got that banjo and... I didn't really take it that serious. I enjoyed it. And I, I always loved banjo music. Like I can remember like listening to like the first Eagles record and the flying burrito brothers when I was a kid, I don't know how I got these tapes, but like I would listen and there's a few songs on that first Eagles record. That's got some incredible burning banjo on it that I just loved. So, you know, uh, that's where banjo came into my life, but I put it away you know, I didn't really take it serious. I would write a few joke songs here and there, but I didn't really take it serious until that one trip that you're talking about in Brazil. That's amazing. Yeah, I, know, it's, I never, <laughs> I, I never tell anybody that because uh, it's 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 funny. But I did. I, I played some banjo in college the first time I went to college. <laughs> My practice run. When did you decide to leave Penn State? 
I, you know, I left, I had an epiphany at, I went to go see a, a, a show at Penn State with my friends and, you know, we had, you know, various, um, we were very much into the, uh, the psychedelics and stuff. So we would Which go. Show was it? Was it, it? Does that matter? Um, it was a band called Schleho. They're still kind of around and they've all become kind of good friends of mine since then, or at least, you know, we've, um, you know, become really friendly over the years, what but yeah, they, it? it's like, um, they were like Berkeley kids that were playing kind of jam instrumental music. Um, it was really, you know, uh, it was really complex to me. And when I heard it, it was really inspiring. I, you know, at that point I was like searching, I was hungry for things that I didn't understand, you know, and that's what eventually led me to jazz, you know, but I went to this Schleho show, um, with a few friends and there, you know, there was 50, 60 people there or whatever. And it just blew my mind. And I just made a decision that I'm leaving Penn state to go to music school because it's what I really wanted to do. And, I wasn't really succeeding in the academic world. So I ended up packing my stuff and moving home. And I found a, a teacher in Long Island. I lived at my parents' house and I, I got two jobs to prove to them that I wasn't lazy. And <laughs> Yeah, and they must have loved that. No, they hated it. Out. They yeah. were not <laughs> so into it. Um, you know, fortunately, you know, my grand my grandparent my grandfather had left me a little money to go to college and I had burned through all that. So you know, I had exhausted that chance and I went home, you know, kind of with my tail between my legs, but ready to start over as a musician. And I got, I, I studied with this teacher, Sonny Dallas. I really, I, I had an epiphany that I wanted to go to music school. I wanted to play upright bass. I wanted to learn how to play jazz because that was like a great mystery to me. I didn't understand it. You know, rock and roll, you could put it in front of me and I could hear it and listen to it and, and play it, you know. But when it came to jazz and the more complicated music, I it was a mystery and I needed a teacher. So I found a, a really great bass teacher uh, named Sonny Dallas, who used to play in Buddy Rich's band back in the day. And he gave me the ropes. He showed me the ropes. I, I bought a, a cheap upright bass and I started slugging it out there. And it's a, it's a really hard instrument to get good at like really you know it takes a lot of hours um to put into it to get a good sound and to groove it's like and when you're playing jazz with older people and you're the bass player and you're not good you're gonna get a lot of raised eyebrows so it was it was it was a like boot camp you know and right. i yeah you're the foundation of the sound it really you really are if the bass player is bad the music is bad and i think that kind of goes with a lot of music, but, but yeah, I mean, I spent, you know, uh, almost a year probably in, at my parents' house getting my stuff together. And I auditioned for the new school in New York and it got accepted and I ended up, that changed my whole trajectory. So I moved to Brooklyn in 1999 and, uh, yeah, I went to school and got my ass kicked over and over and over. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? that did to your personality like changing your trajectory like mm. that and then working so hard at something yeah i mean i think reinvention is essential to finding yourself you know i think if you stay the course you know your whole life you'll never discover things about you 
that you might have known, you know. I I've been always chasing this thing in music like to understand it all, you know, to get to a point where I just hear it and I understand what it is and you know, I I feel like I've had a, a little bit of a head start with that. I've had a, a definitely a, a talent for it, but it takes a lot of development to get to a point where you know, you feel like you're fluent in music, you know. I feel like I am now, but I'm still chasing it. I'm still getting to a, a different level, you know. Changing your trajectory is important to challenge yourself, I think, you know, in some ways. Also, in reading up about you, it seems like you're a person who's like very into mindfulness and meditation. Yeah. Um, so like in thinking about like you're always kind of like chasing something in music, how do you feel about progression versus being present. Hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Progression in which way? Like you say you're always chasing something in music. You're always going after something. And that kind of like reminds me of the, of like uh, a lot of like thought leaders in mindfulness talking about like your life is happening now. Like, your life doesn't start if you like get that dream job or your life doesn't start right. if you like have the perfect body or yeah um all these things that don't matter but i understand um, what you're saying yeah right but yeah yeah there is something to be said about like progression right it, and if there's like a like a duality for you there yeah well you know this 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 comes to mind a lot when when I make records, uh, like when it's time for me to like make a record, it can be really difficult. You know, if, uh, you know, as a musician, I'm always trying to beat myself. I'm always trying to improve, you know, and get better and get more connected to it. And, you know, there's a million things that go into, you know, the mindset of, of being a musician as a practice, you know, not just as a job, but like as a daily thing that I wake up, I warm myself up, I get connected to the thing. You have to filter out all the, you know, the the information that's coming in, things, self-criticism, um, all the challenges that you face, you know, where you want to be, you know. But when it comes to making a record, you have to look at where you are and accept it. You know, you have to you know, be okay with where you are right now. Like as a singer, as a songwriter, as a musician, it's, you know, I hear, I could sit there and hear nothing but flaws if I want to, but I have to let go to the present moment to accept that this is, it's just who I am right now. You know, this record that I just made wave of golden things. It's like, that's who I am right now. And like, it's not even who I am right now. It's who I was a year ago, you know? And like, since then I've, I've had, you know, more epiphanies. I've, I've realized things about myself and where I want to go and what I want to do, but it's just a snapshot of your life, you know, and so is every day. So, you know, you can't beat yourself up about where you are today, but being present and accepting it for who you are and knowing that, you know, just by thinking where you want to be in the future, you will get there. So, you know, that's, that's where I, I've come to peace with records. I used to be very difficult on myself because, you know, I'm not like, I haven't, I haven't been singing since I'm a kid. I, I started singing because I felt like I needed to, to say something to people. And I felt like people connected with my music more if I, 
engaged with my voice and my my words and stuff. And it's hard. It's a it's a very vulnerable place to be when you put yourself out there. You know, you could go down a deep dark hole of self loathing and um, you know self criticism if you let yourself. Yeah. You know. Oh, Mike, so much there. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have so many questions. This is actually something I was thinking about because on this new record, A Wave of Golden Things, you're so let's let's just let's just state for the record that like you are an extremely experimental banjo player and a very progressive musician who loves to do all sorts of crazy shit on your records. Mm-hmm. This record is different in a way because you it sounds like you kind of like realized that you were throwing on a lot of layers and a lot of overdubs to hide a lot of insecurities. Mm-hmm. So that realization sounds pretty incredible. And on this record, you are trying to just like lean into your feelings and be vulnerable. Yeah. And and it's great. Like I think this record is a huge progression for you. Oh, thank you. But then how do you feel about your past self? Like if you're saying like when I make a record, this is where I am, but then you continue to progress as a human being and progress as a musician. How do you feel about that past version of yourself now? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, any of them, you know, like I, I mean, my mom recently has been texting me pictures of that she's finding of me in high school and I like do not want to see them. Yeah. Um, cause it's embarrassing and I like do not feel compassion for, well, I guess that's not true. Like I do look at it and it makes me feel like very compassionate for myself. And it also makes me remember like how hard I was on myself yeah. in those days. So like, how do you feel when you think of your past self? I mean, it's complicated. You know, I, I'm okay with with how my life has gone, you know, I, I kind of, when I look back, I mean, I don't have any regrets really, but I look at myself and I, I see, you know, when I was a little naive, I, you know, I, but I'm okay with it. You know, I wish, you know, you can't really look back because the only re- way that you would get to where you are right now is exactly how you've lived your life. So I can't look back and say, Oh, I wish, you know, I had realized that music was my calling when I was 18. I would have been so far ahead career-wise and 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 this and that. But that's not necessarily true because what, you know, what I've done has led me to this point and this way of thinking that I, that I think now. But, you know, even looking back to my last record and stuff, I've always been trying to get to this purest form of expression. You know, like even making the earliest Tall Tall Trees records, we had this expression. I, I used to work with a band and, and, and we would um, make the records, well, at least two records together. But we were just defying the regular, you know, but, which meant if it sounded like something that someone had done before, then it's no good. Or it's, 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 you know, it needs to be changed, you know. And, you know, that has led me to a way of thinking that has carried on throughout my career as far as defying the regular, like... You know, and that's kind of why I play banjo the way I play and and write songs the way I play is because there are a million amazing musicians out there that are doing traditional things that are doing, you know, the one, four, five country songs and this and that. I love that stuff. But for me, it's it's not 
it's not uh, where I see myself um, needed, you know? I, I feel like there's a need for more experimentation. There's a need for, you know, people to defy the regular more, um, to create something new. And and for me, it's been a blessing and a curse because it's it's made my music kind of unclassifiable in some ways and definitely pushed me to the fringes of, you know, folk festivals and stuff like that, which, you know, I'd like to be a part of more. But I've been kind of straddling this indie folk world like with you know one foot far and another foot <laughs> really far away you know but um you know I, I couldn't have done it any other way <laughs> right okay you lived in new york yeah city Cite. the city the yes. the big apple the big apple which is really suffering right now uh, i couldn't imagine being there me neither you yeah. must be very happy to be in Asheville. yes Asheville is is quite peaceful so did you live there for 20 years or nearly 20 years? Okay. Nearly 20 years. Yeah, I, I moved there. I, I lived in Brooklyn for first five years or so from 99 to like 2003, four, before it was super cool. And then I moved to Harlem because I found an amazing like rent stabilized apartment that I lived in for 15 years, which basically is the reason I was able to sustain myself as a musician, you know. And it's the reason I started singing more because I, I'm I'm pretty shy when it comes to singing and stuff. And when I had roommates in Brooklyn, I just I was just playing my bass, you know, and, and practicing playing bass. But when I got my own apartment and I was by myself, I was like, oh, I could do some singing. And then that's how I really that's when I made the first Tall Tall Trees record in that apartment. Um, oh, that's awesome! Just because there was nobody in my apartment that, that you know could hear me, so. Maybe my upstairs neighbor, mommy, who was super cool. But yeah, New York was huge for me. And it still is as far as like how I feel about music and the things that I've heard and seen. It's an amazing place to live if you're a developing artist. How do you think New York helped shape your curiosity? Well, I mean, just the fact that there's a million things going on at once, art, music, um, you know, and some of the best people in the world are there. So the bar that you get used to hearing, even when you go out and, you know, see local singer songwriters or jazz or something like that, the bar is high because of, you know, it's a hustle. It's a hustle to live there. And in order to get gigs, you have to be really good. You can't really be, it's not like, you know, any place else, you know, small town America where you can just go to a bar and play. It's like in New York, there's a lot of competition for that bar to play. So, you know, people are bringing their A game all the time. And the thing, the thing about being a musician in New York is the avenues that you can go d deep down are there. You know, I, when I, my first, you know, four years, three, four years when I was heavy in school, playing bass, taking my upright on the subway every day, <laughs> you know, it, with a grind, it was a grind playing gigs after school and coming back and then going out to see music after that, you know, I, it, for someone who was really into jazz, that whole world was there, but, but the jazz thing can be kind of expensive. Jazz music is, is, is mostly made these days for people who have a lot of money, you know, and to go see it. You know, if you want to go to the village Vanguard, or you want to go to the blue note or something, you know, that's 30 bucks to drink minimum, this and that, you know, there are smaller places you can go that are cheaper, but 
you know, that music is made for people who have money to go pay for it now. It used to be a folk people music, you know, but now it's, you know, now it's um, expensive for students to go. Yeah. So, you know, I started to realize that, you know, and, and I got a little bored with the jazz music because it, it, you know, it seems like the better you get, the more heady your music gets, the less people come to see you. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, your audience shrinks and shrinks. And by the time, you know, you get to be an amazingly technical musician, your audience is like 45 year old musicians, you know, you know, that are just sitting there. Um, but well, that also brings to that brings to mind that your music, while it is experimental and on the fringes of things, is very listenable. Um, and how you live in that duality of like being so experimental yet so appealing. Mm. Well, how thank do you do you. it? How do I do it? I, you know, I think it's through it's through lyrics, you know, and it's through voice. I've always felt like if there's something simple there and the message is clear somewhat, then you can throw in crazy stuff at people. People are smarter than than a lot of people give them. If you listen to the radio, you would think that people are just like completely zombies, but people are, have a huge capacity for complexity and, you know, and surprises. And, you know, I think, you know, rapping, I mean, yeah, the duality of creating a simple folk song that's also very strange, you know, has a lot of weird things going on. It is, is kind of, you know, fun for me, you know, it's like, how far can I push this, you know, where, you know, it's still listenable, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mike, you have officially moved out of New York City and are in Asheville, North Carolina now. Mm-hmm. But for a while, you were living part-time in New York and then part-time in different places. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how it was to let go of New York but also like you wanted to leave. Yeah, I I had gotten to a point. Um, I mean, I started touring a lot. Back in 2012, I started touring a lot. Tall Tall Trees was originally a, a three and then four piece band of some New York guys and some amazing musicians. But what I had found is in order to really, you know, make a name in the music industry, you have to tour, you have to get out there and play, you know, night after night and work on it. And, you know, the guys that I was playing with, as amazing as they were, they had a lot of bills to pay, you know, they had New York expenses and realities and, you know, touring for a four piece band is really difficult. So I started messing around with loops. I had already been playing with loops as a composition tool, like how to write songs and looping and stuff like that. But I never had really performed it. I only had a band. So I started booking these like little tours, you know, and just going out solo and playing by myself, me and a banjo and my pedal board. And, you know, for me, it was so freeing like to just be in my car and I had my gear and that's it and I just it was so romantic to me to just be on the open road and you know just going to different towns night after night and playing and I kind of you know as much as I love New York and it's a huge part of who I am and you know even growing up there I started to see a lot more of the country and I realized like there's a lot of beauty out there and New York is a very stressful place 
and I'm a very chill person in, in most ways. So I started to see a, 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 you know, a disconnect with, with that lifestyle and, you know, being in the mountains or something, you know, you know, mm. I, I kept coming through Asheville, North Carolina on tour. And I was like, what is this place? It's like, basically if there was a dead show in the eighties, uh, and like <laughs> the parking lot scene just stayed there and became a town. Uh, oh wait, that, what is that, the parking lot scene <laughs> called? It's called uh, Shakedown Street. Shakedown Street, yeah, you're yeah. you're informed. Yeah, it's basically like a Shakedown <laughs> Street that eventually became a real town. <laughs> I mean, a half kid, but it it, it is a I know my my 19 year old hippie self is um, very happy here, and uh, you know it's also a v- very beautiful community full of artists and a lot of entrepreneurs and. Yeah, surprisingly an amazing good music scene down here that would make me not miss New York. Because in New York, you could go out every night and you can see things that'll blow your mind. And it's like, you know, as a young artist, you need that. You need to see what's out there. You need to see the possibilities of of what your art form could be, you know. And now you're an old man and you just want to be outside. Now I just want to sit and with my dog and just sit on the <laughs> porch. And uh, no, I mean... I, you know, yeah, I, I'm, that's kind of true. You know, this is a kind of place that you can't, you can live if you have like an economy going on outside of it. It's not, it's not a very industrial town. It's, it's very touristy. There's a lot of tourism and service industry, you know, things, but as far as like getting a job or anything, it's, it's, and like, you know, advertising, you can't really do that here. So, so it's a good place to pasture for me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about your affinity for nature. Um, Mm. you named your project tall, tall trees. Mm -hmm. Um, you named it after the Roger Miller, George Jones song, but it Mm. sounds like it's not because you love the song, but it's because you love the sentiment, um, of tall, tall trees. Mm -hmm. Um, and it seems like this is even more true since you moved to Asheville can you talk about your connection to nature when it comes to your music and when it comes to you as a person? Yeah. Um, well, yes, I named the project Tall Tall Trees early on. I was really into Roger Miller. That was he was like a, the original. So, I, I, in all honesty, I didn't even know about the Alan Jackson version, which is way, way, way more popular and famous. The song, I don't even really like the song that much. It's a good song. It's a little hokey, but, but you know. It's a great it's, title. It's a gr- I mean, for me, it's felt like a good name for what I was going for. You know, I was in Harlem in this 350 square foot apartment writing Ooh, this music. Small. It's really small, but it was fine for me. I mean, you know, it did me all right for, you know, find a musician in New York that's got his own apartment and, you know, I'll, you know, it'll be a little hard to find that, but, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, it became kind of this fantasy of me living in nature. You know, I've always been a strange isolationist. I love being alone. I love being in nature. You know, for me, that is, you know, my guilty pleasure, you know, you know, I've always been, you know, like this, we're, we're here in, in quarantine right now for our, um, Corona virus quarantine. And I'm like kind of in heaven in some weird way that I I don't have to leave the house. I can just stay home and work and practice and play and write music and stuff. But, you know, for me, 
nature has it's it's inspiring you know going to a place like the grand canyon or switzerland or i mean i've been so fortunate to travel all over the place and and sometimes it's just turning a corner and looking at this amazing place that we live on earth is so i mean there's no words for it you know mm. there's no words for it so i wanted something that was bigger than me you know and tall tall trees you know was that hopefully i've i've done it justice but um you know it really had nothing to do with you know the song as much as it did like you know the grandeur of it yeah it it was definitely a a good reason to move down to Asheville because it's it's a really beautiful place if you like the outdoors and hiking and you know mountains and it's it's it feels like the right place for me what about being in an area where quote quote unquote traditional banjo is so celebrated like yeah. It's so close to the homes of Earl Scruggs and Doc mm. Watson. How does that shape your perspective on your connection to your banjo playing? Yeah, well, I mean, yes. It's, I did move down here, you know, in part because of that, because I wanted to be closer to traditional banjo music. Um, you know, and Earl Scruggs has always been a hero, as well as Doc Watson. And, you know, there's a, there's a million amazing, great banjo players here like in the traditional bluegrass style and old time style. You got you know, the Mavit brothers. Yeah. The Avid brothers are up there. They're doing their thing. You know, it's, it's for me, it's cool. I, you know, I've, I've never been a traditionalist, but I've always um, respected and studied this tradition. You know, I spent a lot of time learning how to play bluegrass banjo and claw hammer and, and this and that mostly so I could use it in my own arsenal as, you know, something that is informing how I play, you know, I, I I don't have as much interest in playing. I mean, it's really fun, you know, to play traditional music, but there are so many people out there that are just, they dedicate their lives to it and taking it to as far as it can go. But for me, it's, it's more about, you know, because I'm hungry for things to play and technique and, you know, different ways to think about things. So, but being down here has been great. I, I, it's really fun to be in a place that appreciates banjo. I mean, I've been studying some old time banjo with some players down here and stuff like that, just because it's fun. It keeps me keeps me hungry, keeps me in grasshopper mode, you know, which is important to stay in if you want to if you're on a life quest to be, you know, a musician wizard, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love so. that. All right, this is the part of the interview where we talk about Kishibashi. Okay, sure. How did uh, you guys meet? We met in New York um, about 20 years ago, right around that time that I got that apartment. I started uh, a band there. It was kind of like a collective of composers and great musicians. And yeah, originally it was a four piece and I was obsessed with Brazilian music at that time. Um, I had been going back and forth to Brazil and I was obsessed with these Brazilian composers who were making like this really kind of complex dance music. And I started a band to kind of emulate that um, sound, like upright bass and flute percussion and guitar. Um, and the flute player, uh, this guy, Zach Colwell, who's an amazing sax and flute and just all around musician, was playing in the circus uh, as his day job. And... 
he asked if he could bring this violinist over to my house to play with us. And that Wait, was, was Kay playing in the circus. He was playing in the circus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was his money gig for, for quite a while. He was playing in the big apple was. circus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was their, that was a great money gig. He probably, you know, they probably made more money than they had ever seen as a musician doing that, you know, and it was, it was interesting, you know, but you know, um, Zach brought Kay to my house and before you know it we were a seven piece band in my 350 square foot apartment slammed in there Perfect. playing each other's <laughs> compositions and stuff and uh, and yeah we you know he was great we just clicked right away and like mm. you know we had stayed in touch you know he started his band Jupiter One with Zach um, which was kind of like a more synth synth rock kind of a la Killers you know, kind of band. And I thought they were amazing. Um, and I had started Tall Tall Trees in kind of in the ashes of this this band that we had. And um, yeah, we just kind of stayed in touch. I, I would fill in on bass in his band once in a while. And, you know, he started touring with Regina Spector and then of Montreal. You know, As I was, their violin player. As their violin player, yeah. yeah. And, you know, when he made his first Kishibashi record, he sent it to me. And I listened to it. I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. I, I finally like I felt like, you know, he found his his voice that was honest and like, you know, as creative as he could be. And he asked me, you know, he's like, you want to come on tour with me? What are you doing with your tall, tall trees and banjo and stuff? Let's, you know, come on tour. And we did one tour, just him and I as a duo. And he did the second half of that tour with another band as his backup band. And, you know, we just had so much fun. He, uh, you know, he just asked me to be his band. So we started touring together as a duo, which eventually became a trio. And, you know, we've watched it grow, you know, it, this was, you know, eight years ago now. So now, you know, I remember sitting with him like having sushi in Boston and we were looking at the line around the corner at great Scott to come see us play. And we were like, Oh man, this is sold out. Like <laughs> We were just like eating sushi on the corner of the, that place. And we're, you know, it was very exciting times. Um, you know, we learned a lot and I developed pretty much everything I do on the banjo, like just night after night touring, you know, playing with, with him. Yeah. I mean, That's he, cool. he's, he's a great friend. We're very, you know, close, minded we have a lot uh, you know we have a lot of things in common and we come from a similar idea so you know I listen to him he listens to me I think and you know it's just like you know when I started whacking the banjo with the mallet and stuff he's like man you gotta develop that that's that's interesting so yeah mm. you know he's always been a really good um friend and someone to bounce ideas off of and I uh, don't know him super well but have uh, had the pleasure of uh, meeting him and spending some time with him and he's just like a lovely person mm -hmm. oh yeah so friendly and um, it's it's just really nice to hear about your collaboration with him and mm -hmm. how you guys encourage each other and challenge each other one thing I was wondering though about your singing voice, we were talking about it earlier because it often gets overlooked for, you know, all of the kooky shit you're doing with the banjo, but your mm -hmm. singing voice is like pretty special. And I wanted to know um, a little bit more about how you feel about your voice and how your feelings about your singing have changed. Good. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. That's, I mean, for me, singing has never, uh, it's always been 
uh, in service to the music, you know, but it is something, I mean, it's, I was, I didn't grow up singing in choir or anything like that. I, you know, I maybe like opened my mouth to sing for the first time in college, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's a whole nother instrument in itself, you know, learning how I spent hours and hours and thousands of hours playing bass, playing etudes on an upright bass with a bow, trying to play in tune and stuff like that. And like, after studying an instrument so hard to the point where, you know, I've got carpal tunnel, I've got, you know, all sorts of things. It's when it came to like really focusing on my voice, I kind of approached it in the same way. Like I'm just going to exercise my voice and try and make it as connected to my mind as possible. So, you know, it's, I'm still chasing that now, you know, I, my voice is lowered uh, as I've gotten older and, you know, I'm kind of enjoying that now and I'm trying to develop that even further where it's effortless. You know, I think, you know, my, my father always, you know, used to tell me that, you know, in my early days that I was good, but I did, I wasn't effortless. It didn't look Oh my God, that's such a dad thing to say. Such a dad thing to say. He would, he probably, you know, my dad's that kind of dad that's like, you know, yeah, he's always like, you know, hey, dad, yeah, me and Kay are playing on Letterman. Oh, that's great. When are you going to play your songs on Letterman? Yeah, Mike. Oh, thanks, dad. Yeah, cool. All right. (laughs) My dad used to listen to me on the radio. And he would give, he would be like, hey, he's from Boston, so he has an amazing accent. So he's yeah. like, hey, Sin, I heard you on the radio. Heard a lot of ums and ahs. Mm-hmm. Ums Thanks, and Dad. Ahs. Yeah, that's, like, I mean, that's what dads are there for. They're yeah, there to knock you down a peg. I don't want you to think that you're that good. <laughs> kind of. Because yeah. you are. You nah. are that good. <laughs> yeah, my dad, is. he's a wonderful man. But yeah, I mean, he, um, he definitely, he's very um, economical with the praise, you know, but it's good. It's, but yeah, as far as singing goes, I, I have a, I'm just trying to be as honest as possible, you know, and like, that's the thing trying, it's the same thing with banjo. I've been chasing this thing where it's immediate, where, you know, I can connect my head and my heart to music and let it carry me instead of me push it, you know, which it's, it's a, especially in these days, this day and age with so much distraction and phones and Instagram live and this and that, like finding your voice and letting it carry you instead of pushing yourself in the way that you want, you know, you know, I think that's where all good art lives is in, you know, the, uh, it's in that weird place between when you're not really doing it, you're just present for it. You know, some of the, you know, songs that I, you know, best songs that I've written, it's just like it came out, you know, because I didn't get in the way of it by thinking, oh, this sounds like shit. Your voice is no good. You know, there's your inner critic is always your, your worst your inner enemy. dad. Yeah. Inner dad. Wow. <laughs> That's deep. Inner dad just telling, you know, he just wants you. you to get better. I know that's 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 the beauty of it, and it's it's funny because I'm also very critical, you know. And in my relationship too, I find my I love cooking, and I'm very you know I'm into cooking. It's been something that's been 
you know, I've been doing for my entire life and, you know, raised in an Italian family. So I've got my things, you know, and, you know, with my partner, I can definitely get a little critical um, because I like things to be perfect in my own happy way. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely trickled down. Crit, crit, critic, yeah. Criticnomics. I don't know how that goes, but. Criticnomics, yes. Yeah. You and I will never cook together because I am super insecure. Oh, so yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's just okay. make a deal right now. All right. Good deal. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the baby animals that were born oh, when yeah. you were recording your latest album on the hemp farm, <laughs> um, which that sounds, sounds so ridiculous. Amazing. Yeah. It, it was amazing. <laughs> it was. I've been fortunate to stumble my way into some really amazing circumstances, particularly with records. Um, mm. I'm not yeah, like, this a, is not the, this is not the first amazing situation you found yourself no, in recording. Let us not forget the vacant health resort that you babysat for in 2015 yeah, and I made did. a record there, but mm-hmm. that sounds incredible. But first of all, let's talk about these baby animals. Yes. Uh, well, yes, as you've noted, we, we were fortunate enough to make a record on this hemp farm. Um, I was playing, uh, I got booked they to give play out, this. They give out some samples? <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did, my dear friend Franny. Um, yes, so I, I got booked to play this festival in Asheville. It's kind of a small festival called Barnaroo. Not Bonnaroo, but Barnaroo. Um, and I hadn't thought much of it until, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't really, I just put things in the calendar and I don't think about it until I go there. It's like, you know, it's part of my be present um, technique. But I ended up at this <laughs> festival playing um, at Barnaroo on this beautiful farm about 15 minutes from here in uh, outside of Asheville. And, you know, we rolled up to this little festival and played our set. And at that time I was looking for a place to make a record. I had all these songs and it was just time. I don't have the space in my house to, to make a full record cause with drums and stuff. So, you know, my partner at the time was talking to Franny who owns the farm and she had mentioned that I was looking for a place to make my record. And she immediately was like, well, come look at this, you know, and she took me into her barn, which she had turned into this very, very nice Airbnb, but still with all, you know, the high ceilings and wood and pretty much everything I needed to make a record. So, so she was kind enough to rent me the space for next to nothing. And I lived there for three weeks. Uh, I set up a mobile rig and just kind of woke up on their farm every day and and made my record. But the bonus of it was, you know, during the three weeks, there was 16 animals born. Yes, baby goats, baby sheep. I had never, I mean, I'm from Long Island in New York. I'd never (laughs) been that kind of, you know, in on a farm. And like, I was literally waking up every morning and just walking out to the farm and seeing like brand new life every day. It was like, pretty incredible and the humbling and you know it must have impacted your mood tremendously it totally did the vibe there was so magical so i'm just holding baby goats that are just born and like i love animals so you know for me it's like you know it was hard to pull me away from all that stuff to go make music but 
it was such a beautiful place to make a record and inspiring and humbling. And I, I, I felt the, the glory of life every day that I woke up there, you know, um, just walking out on the, on their, you know, second floor deck and overlooking this farm and just, you know, the sounds of it. And it was, it was a beautiful experience and, you know, it really got into the music, you know. When you're in a situation like that, moving into a new space to do something so intentional as to like make a record to work. Yeah. How long does it take for you to like settle in to the space? This time it took four days, <laughs> specifically. I mean, it depends. Like I, you know, I really set set into this record um, with the mission of making it fast. I didn't want to linger on it. I didn't want to second guess myself, which I've done in the past. And you know, the last record I made on that health retreat, I was there seven or eight months. So, and I wrote the whole thing there as well. But as far as recording and stuff, you know, it's. When you record yourself, uh, it's very easy to erase mistakes, to over-edit yourself, to layer things on top of each other, to kind of obscure your insecurities and whatnot. And I really wanted this album to be like just right in my face, like this is what I sound like and it's okay. And it's a it's a hard feel your thing fucking to feelings. Do. Yeah, feel your fucking feelings right in the, you know in my face. Um, but yeah, so it, it took four days. Partially it was like, you know, getting, you know, I use kind of a hybrid tape digital system. So I record some things on tape and some things like, you know, in the computer and I kind of put it together in a way, but the tape is there to keep honest and like, you know, cause editing <laughs> tape, nobody wants to do that. So, you know, it's like as much as I can do on the tape, I, I want to do, but working with, I was working with my, um, my drummer, uh, Micah, who had been touring with me on the last record for the you know past couple of years. And, you know, working, it was my first time recording with somebody else there. And like my cooking, I am very critical and I want a very specific thing a lot of times, you know, so, you know, working you're so with, chill. I am so chill. I am extremely, probably too chill. I, I try and be kind and I try and be giving, you know, especially when I'm working with other people that are helping me like realize my vision, you know, and like, so, you know, bringing someone up, you know, that's, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to bring people to, to rise to the occasion of, of creating something magical, make something magical now, you know, basically. But I mean, it's, it's a lot of it's about a mindset, you know, and knowing how to, to speak with people and also communicate what you want. And, you know, it's a little bit of a give and take, you know, but fortunately Micah was extremely patient with me and, you know, and a good sport and he rose to the occasion, you know, and it's hard when you, when you're feeling the pressure of making a record in a short amount of time and it's not going the way that you want it to go. It's, it can be very stressful, you know, um, I feel that pressure, you know. In talking about leaning into feelings that you'd rather avoid, how you use songwriting and music to help. So I'm thinking about the title track for the new record, A Wave of Golden Things, which you said that you started to write in 2012 in reaction to Sandy Hook. Um, can you explain how it felt 
so you you wrote a little bit of that song, you put it away because it was too painful to deal with, basically, how it felt after you picked the song back up again and what it was like to revisit that feeling that you had put away. Uh, it was complicated. You know, I, I write a lot. I, I like to write for fun, you know. For me, like, that's like, a, it's like a magical, unexplored forest of wonders I can go prancing through um, most of the time. You know, it's like, oh, there's this, you know. But yeah, that song, I I specifically remember sitting there and hearing the news. I was in my apartment in Harlem and I had heard this news you know, about Sandy Hook. And it was really the first one that kind of hit home because it was so close. And I knew people that had children in that school and like, you know, uh, it was heartbreaking. I, I just got to this point and, you know, for me sitting down at the piano is always kind of a meditative thing. And I, and I do it a lot, but I don't do it on my records, you know, that much for me. I, I like to sit and play and, you know, it helps me feel things, you know, um, it's very, different than string instruments for me because it's just sitting there. I don't have to do a lot. I just press, you know, the keys and the sounds are good. You know, I mean, as far as tone wise, you know, yeah, for that song, it, it just kind of poured out. It was one of those things where I got out of the way, you know, and I just kind of put my tape recorder on and I started singing and the, it just came out kind of in one piece, you know, but uh, oftentimes when that happens, it's very easy to, think oh but this isn't much you know this isn't I, this didn't take any work it can't be any good you know that's that's what my inner critic says so you know and part of it was it was just a very painful thing I did I don't like the sound of my voice a lot of the time when it's recorded so I I'll oftentimes put things away and never listen to them again and but when I you know I had moved to Asheville and I started thinking about this new record and I found this box of tapes and I, you know, started just kind of nostalgically going through the tapes, which a lot of times is cringe worthy for me. But, but this song came through and like immediately I was just taken right back. And it was right around the time another shooting had happened. And, you know, it brought to mind, you know, how I felt that day on Sandy Hook. And, I realized that it made me feel something and it sounded good on the tape, you know? So when I started to write a new record, I started with that song. I was like, you know, and this, the lyrics aren't quite, they're not really even descriptive of, you know, of anything to do with um, Sandy Hook specifically, but, you know, it was more of a feeling, but, you know, in setting the tone for what I wanted my new record to be, I wanted it to be turning this tragedy into something hopeful, you know, and that became kind of like a, you know, a story that I would be developing in my mind, you know, to tell the story of this record. And, you know, I think um, it became like a, a touch point for the emotional uh, information that I wanted to get across. Okay, Mike. Yes. Are you ready for the lightning round? Lightning round? Okay, sure. Yes. Okay, here we go. First song you learned on the guitar. Ooh, man. Um, on guitar? I didn't start playing guitar until college, so... On the bass, it was probably um, the Smurfs theme song. 
I remember as being we'll ex- uh, the judges will accept that answer. Okay, good. Yeah, that was definitely. I remember that scribbled in my um, in my uh, my lesson book when I was like in seventh grade taking bass lessons. The Smurf song is the one that's like la 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 la. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And then there was a Gargamel's theme. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Mm. All right, Batman or Superman? Batman. What's your karaoke song? I don't do karaoke. Wow. Yeah, I'm not into it. I don't know why. It's it's the weird like surprise of karaoke. I wish I was. Okay. I wish I was into it. Maybe just give it a shot. Yeah, I guess I should. Yeah. All right, Life Challenge 2020. All right, favorite radio station as a kid? Um, very good question. I mean, there was WBAB in Long Island, which was a classic rock station. Mostly played Led Zeppelin, and that's it. Hmm. So, yeah. Dogs or cats or something else? Both? I love dogs. I mean, I'm a dog person. If I've got dogs around me, I'm good. Also, cats seem to like me and will um, circle me. Um, (laughs) Are you allergic to them? No. No, no. I'm, I'm cool with cats. I don't get as much from cats as I do with, like... A good, a dog. solid a, dog, yeah. A good, solid dog. What yeah. is your coffee order? I'm, I've am i got a pension for Italian espresso, so, I mean, anything with that. Now I'm into Cortado. I like the brevity of it. Um, not to be a coffee snob. I mean, yeah, my partner thinks I'm a coffee snob, but, you know, I just make my little Italian mocha stovetop espresso every morning with a little bit of foamed milk, and I'm good to go. Sounds normal. That's totally normal. First album you bought with your own money? Uh, it's either uh, Tom Petty Full Moon Fever or... Oh, oh actually, that's the CDs. I, I've definitely bought tapes before that. Uh, I bet you it was Poison. Poison. Open up and say, ah. First concert? My first concert was Iron Maiden. Last book you read? Uh, well, uh, I've been reading the Sandman series Neil Gaiman I saw that which I'm almost done with so it's it's kind of an epic uh, thing oh my gosh let's yeah. do another podcast where we just talk about Sam just Man. geek out about Neil yeah. Gaiman oh my god yes yeah totally. yeah but I, I've been trying to break it up because I, I you know I, I started it over I read it like halfway and then too much time went by and then I started it over so gotta go back it's a complicated complex it is complicated line. it's beautiful and complicated and so confusing and also amazing what is your dream collaboration dream collaboration oh that's that's a really good question i would really like to get in the studio with bella fleck i think would be really fun he was like one of my you know early heroes as far as like taking banjo music to different places and i think i think we'd have a lot to talk about and hang that seems attainable yeah i hope so i hope so he is also a very nice person. I've never yeah. met him, but I talked to him on the phone one time. He's very oh, yeah. kind. Yeah, he seems like he doesn't seem like he'd be like a big no. ego dude. You know, no. it's like I mean that's the thing about banjo players. It's it's like you're it's not like a flying V shredder guitar. It's like you're not doing it for for <laughs> the, the glory. Yeah, you know if you if you've if you've you know resolved to. Treat, you know, dedicate your life to five-string banjo or six-string banjo in my case. But, um, you know, you've got to be a decently humble person, I think. Flying or invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. What 
is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? That's hard. That's hard. I've seen a lot of beautiful places. Um, unfortunately, um, I was just in Costa Rica, and that's on the tip of my tongue. It's an incredibly beautiful place on the Caribbean side. Um, I took a vacation, which is something I've never done before, really, <laughs> that I wasn't working and playing. Um, yeah, Costa Rica was incredible. Awesome. That's, yeah. All right, that's it. That's the lightning round. You did it. I did it? Did I win? Yep. Uh, yes. Oh, excellent. Is it a lifetime supply of toilet paper? Because I could really use that right oh, now. Oh, man. I wish. Uh, <laughs> it's, it is it is very crazy how this low supply of toilet paper in stores continues. What are the people doing who have all the toilet paper? Coincidentally, uh, my partner bought me a bidet for my birthday, uh, <laughs> which was just that before this entire thing happened. I know. But yeah. Who knew that that was going to happen? And it still doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. We're living in very uh, unusual and unprecedented the bidet times. Or just the times? <laughs> just the times. <laughs> the bidet is quite nice, actually. I mean, I, I've toured a lot in Europe and I, I've and Japan as well. Japan is years ahead of us in the in the bathroom um, situation. The bathroom game. Yes, they wow. are. Well, I really love the end of this podcast. is all about the toilet. Yeah. Right. Thank, Where you. thank you so hopefully much. Hopefully this Mike. world is not going. So <laughs> Right, not right. into the toilet. But thank you so much and congrats on the new record. It's great. Thanks, Cindy. Basic Folk was produced by Laura McCarthy this week. Our business manager is Lindsay Myers. Uh, Adam Curry, also producer for Basic Folk. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Uh, buy records right now. Musicians could use the extra income from merch. Um, send them a tip on Venmo or PayPal when you're streaming their concerts. But do your part to support musicians right now during this really strange time where they've lost a lot of income from uh, canceled gigs. All right. Uh, you can find more information about Basic Folk at my website, cindyhouse.net. And thanks for listening. All right. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.